6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 46 through 49. Last time we talked about Isaiah 45, and um, what I thought I'd do tonight before we get into Isaiah 46 (laughs) is to address in a little more depth, for lots of reasons, verse 18 of 45. We touched on it, but I don't think we really did it justice, apparently, from some of the reactions. So whenever I don't stir up enough controversy, I realize I really haven't covered the material. In Isaiah 45, verse 18, there is a possible insight which leads to a conjecture that you should be aware of. I should be candid with you. I lean in favor of the conjecture I'm about to present, but I don't want to oversell it because it's just a conjecture. It's a provocative one, and that's why I share it with you. But you should understand that what I'm about to present is fraught with lots of diverse opinions, and many good scholars are on both sides of the issue. It's not a question of being informed. It's a question of really of perspective and other things. But uh, for those of us that uh, take the Bible seriously, subtle insights are often very meaningful. And this is rather an interesting one. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, we find encounter the following passage. For thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens, God himself, who formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Interesting passage. The context, of course, of the remark he makes is the creation. Thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens. God himself who formed the earth and made it, and so on. He says, I created it not in tohu, Hebrew word tohu. And what this gives rise to is an apparent contradiction. Now, there is a principle I do want to share with you, and that is whenever you do think you found a contradiction in the Scripture, rejoice. Because in the apparent contradiction, typically, lies an insight, a discovery. The Bible has no contradictions. It may appear to contradict itself because we are not adequately perceiving what God is saying or there's some other kind of a problem. could be a translational problem, something else. So recognize, first of all, I'll just boldly make the assertion, there are no contradictions. The The word is inerrant. It is supernaturally engineered. So when you think you found a contradiction, rejoice, because in the apparent contradiction, you're in for an insight if you'll do the homework. Now, that may or may not apply to what I'm about to say. I'm just mentioning that incidentally because the methodology is perhaps the most important thing. The one thing as we share time together and spend our evenings together, the one thing I'm hoping you'll carry away isn't some specific technical detail, but rather respect for the Word and awe and wonder is what God has done. And, And discover for yourself enough of what I'm saying to take it seriously. Seriously. Not allegorically, metaphorically. Take it seriously. But anyway, this all impacts where I'm headed is Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period, carriage return, new subject. First seven words in the Hebrew, 
open the Torah. And uh, about that, there's uh, much we could talk about, but that's, you know, our study in Genesis. But verse 2 is translated in the King James English, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. It goes on, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The word without form and void, the phrase in the Hebrew is tohu vubohu. And that's really where all the controversy starts to swing on. Because the word tohu actually means desolation. The word uh, vubohu is emptiness. So if we were going to be a little more strict and careful in verse 2, instead of saying without form and void, we'd be saying in desolation and emptiness. But actually our problems start even sooner. In verse 2, the first word is and. There's a connective that's used here. It's an adversative connective. What do I mean by that? It first of all implies a sequence, but it also implies an opposite or adversarial position. What I mean by that is I'm going to suggest to you that the word and should have been translated but. And let me give you an example. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. It doesn't say, and of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. You see, verse 16, you see, you can eat of any tree you like, but of the tree. You see, the word is translated but, not and, but same word, same structure. Uh, you might turn to uh, Genesis 17, verse 21. He's talking about Ishmael in verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac. See what I mean by adversative? It's in contrast. So it's not translated, and my covenant will I establish. You'd miss the meaning. He's contrasting it. I'm going to bless him, but my covenant I'll establish with Isaac. See what I'm getting? So the structure there implies uh, it's adversative. We also notice something else. If you do a study here, most of the time when that word is used, it also implies a time delay or time sequence. The time separation where this word is used in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2 verses, is an eight-year period. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 5 and 6, it's a 38-year period. In First Chronicles 10, 14 and 11, 1, it's a seven-year period. And in Ezekiel 6, 22 and 7, 1, it's a 58-year period. In other words, the word but implies sort of a reversal and a delay. That's what's suggested in the way it's used. That's the word and. The tohu vuboho we've talked about, means desolation and emptiness. There's many places where this shows up, but let's pick up Jeremiah 4 to get a feeling for how this is used. On Jeremiah 4, we'll pick it up about verse 23. Now, Jeremiah is speaking of a judgment. It's anticipatory, but he's describing as, as if it already happened. He says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, tohu vabohu. And the heavens, they had no light. And I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. And I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus saith, hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. And I won't get into why he's describing the judgment. The point is, it's a judgment type of passage. 
And we discover when we start looking at Tohu Vubohu, wherever it's used in the scripture, it says desolation and emptiness, but always it seems to be suggestive of judgment. That's how things get desolate. They don't start desolate. They're made desolate. You follow me? So that's the Tohu Vubohu background. There's even a more important word, in a sense, for where we're headed, and that's the word was. <laughs> the word was is accusative. And what that means is, is it's not a verb of being, but it's a verb of action. Something, it's not a verb of existence. It's a verb of, of, of something, it requires an object, something's happening to something. And that's why it's normally translated became. Was implied it's always been that way. Let me give you an example of where that word is used. And we'll turn to Genesis 19, verse 26. And we all remember the story of Lot's wife. Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were, of course, told not to look back. But verse 26 says, But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I won't get into the Lot's thing or the pillar of salt thing this evening. The point is, was she always a pillar of salt? No. Is it a description of her as she always is? No. It's a description of something that happened, that she became. You see what I'm saying? That's what I mean by it's an accusative verb. So, taking those insights as to the and and the tohu vuboho and the was, if you will, there are scholars, competent linguistic analysts, that argue that verse 2 should be translated slightly differently. And it would read, starting with verse 1 and just reading through to get the tone of it, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but the earth became desolation and emptiness. And the Spirit of God brooded, moved the way a hen moves on eggs, brooded upon the face of the waters. And on we go. Now, this gives rise to a viewpoint by some scholars that there is a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2. There's also the implication that that gap of time could be gigantic we have no idea what occurred. Now, in terms of, of, of soundness here, the idea of a gap being there is no problem. The language does seem to suggest that viewpoint. But when we get to Isaiah 45, 18, God says he didn't create it. Tohu, in desolation. He formed it to be inhabited. So if one is very strict, it seems to suggest the possibility that God created the universe, created the heaven and the earth, and something may have happened that we have no record of that caused the earth to become desolation and emptiness. And what we have recorded in Genesis following is what some people might call a recreation. That's, that falls apart a little bit because the word bara is used subsequently and so on. So far, we're talking, it's very comfortable. There's no problem, except in this crack, people try to drive a truck through. The other problem that surfaces as you start contemplating these issues is another dilemma. The first question is, is when were the angels created? Well, first of all, the angels were created beings. No problem so far. When were they created? 
Not sure. Some people would argue they're embraced in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Could be. Others argue for some, because of some passages in Job that they rejoiced to see this, so they were created earlier. But whatever. The real dilemma is, is as we read the passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we discover the origin and career and destiny of one of those super angels called cherubim. In fact, apparently it was the one that was in charge of everything. Who really blew it? We know him as Lucifer or Satan and so forth. And the fall of Satan has been well studied by most of us. And from Revelation 12, we know a third of the angels got tangled up in that mess. The question is, when did it happen? Because in Genesis 1, we have the overview, the creation hymn. Genesis 2, we have Adam created. In Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve and the famous story of their fall in which God declares war on Satan. So here we are in Genesis chapter 3, the first verse. We have the Nachash, the shining one, the mischief maker already afoot trying to thwart God's plans. So when did Satan fall? One would argue he obviously fell prior to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2 is on a different subject, the creation of Adam. When did Satan fall? No record of it. But some scholars advance the conjecture, it's conjecture, that he may have fallen between the first two verses of chapter 1. And what supports that kind of a perspective, at least, is, are some hints throughout the scripture that the earth may have been his original throne, Satan's, his original abode, his original base of operations, whatever. And when we study carefully Ezekiel 28, the passage of Satan, we find Eden described in very different terms than we find in Genesis. So that also seems to fuel this viewpoint. Is it significant? I don't think so. I'm just sharing it with you so you're aware of it. Uh, it's the so-called gap theory. But when people use that term, that can mean many different things to many different people. The concept of a gap between the first two verses, I'm not uncomfortable with at all. It sure seems to be suggested by the text. The possibility that that period that it may involve may indeed have invo- been somehow the um, time frame when a lot of the things that Ezekiel and others talk about. That's no problem. I wouldn't build any doctrine on it, and I'm not saying there's some profound uh, operative insight from all this, other than just be aware of it. There are some things that it isn't. It has nothing to do with dinosaurs and fossils and some of those issues. A lot of people misunderstand. They use the gap theory as their way of trying to duck the dilemma they seem to face between the age of the universe as it's observed and the age of the uh, universe as suggested in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. The gap there has got nothing to do with that. Certainly, at least not on the earth. Because I want you to remember one scientific fact about fossils. They're dead. Have you ever noticed? How many have noticed? Okay, good. If fossils are dead, that means they happened after Genesis 3. Now, many people would argue with that, but I'll take them on. That's another whole issue. The net of it is is that... um, Fossils obviously have died. I believe that death came after Adam. One of the things that may help us as we sort of grapple with some of these issues is to recognize the discontinuities through time. As you're looking back, perhaps one of the most profound discontinuities that we face in time is Noah's flood. 
What I mean by that is the world prior to the flood was vastly different than we generally assume or infer. We know a few things. We know that it never rained prior to Noah's flood. That was part of the mystery of it all. That was the first rain. So the, the earth had a totally different ecology prior to Noah's flood. It wasn't just a lot of water flooding. There were some major changes impacting on the earth by the Lord. So uh, what do we know about the flood? Well, we know there was a different water cycle. We also know something else. They, they apparently have uh, made some interesting measurements on pterodactyls and discovered that the atmospheric pressure had to be at least two to one higher than it is today for them to fly and so forth. There are a lot of weird things that those who get into this come to some conjectures about, but the net of it all is, is that we begin to, the more we study it, the more we begin to realize the world prior to the flood was quite different than we generally presume. The extended longevities are certainly a characteristic, and there have been many conjectures or theories as to why. A blanket of uh, greater protection against radiation being one of them and other aspects. So as you study, if you get into this, and there are many competent writers that really get into this, and of course Henry Morris and others are perhaps the most noteworthy in that, in that group. But there's another discontinuity that we also, as we keep moving back in time, there's even a greater discontinuity than Noah's flood, and that's Genesis 3. See, we only know the world post-curse. And the redemption that Isaiah and Revelation and the whole Bible talks about isn't just you and I and the problem of our sin. That's the big one, and that's the one that concerns us. But there's more going on than that. Because Isaiah says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So there's a lot going on. And Paul tells us the creation groans waiting for our redemption. So there's an awful lot going on. The whole introduction of the entropy laws, I believe, occurred in Genesis 3. That leads to some even wilder conjectures, which may not be correct, but at least they're mind-stretching. I challenge you to prove to me that Adam lived in only three dimensions. We live in three dimensions. I'm speaking spatial dimensions. We live in three and a half dimensions, actually. Three spatial dimensions and part of what one would call a time dimension. But it's not a full dimension because we can only move forward. We can move forward and look back. We can't look forward or move back. So it's not really a full dimensionality. But the point is, whatever that is, the point is we live... We understand we, we live and move and have our being in a dimensionality that may not be the limitations that Adam enjoyed prior to his fall. He walked with God. He was clothed with light, whatever that means, according to the Psalms. So, is this important only in that we be very, we tread cautiously when we're in the Torah, especially in those early chapters? Because there's vastly more going on there than most of us have any idea. And the most interesting books in my mind, on the book of Genesis, early chapters, are books written by Jewish physicists, people, Orthodox, who really understand Genesis 1, on the one hand, and on the other hand also really understand advanced physics. And as you start getting into that, you make these incredible discoveries. That The first chapter of Genesis anticipates our most advanced discoveries in particle physics and the rest if you really understand what it says and really understand what our present understanding of the physical universe is. So we covered, I think, most of that in, in our tapes on Genesis 1, and they're obviously, uh, that's a separate off-the-track bit, but I thought I would get into that a little bit because uh, um, I never want to miss an opportunity to stir up controversy. The Acts 17.11 always applies. Any Chuck Mr. Bible study is suspect. <laughs> and... Uh, 
Luke tells you not to believe anything I tell you, but to be like the Bereans and receive the word with all readiness of mind, but search the scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. Amen. Right on. So, And that's why it's very important for me to be conspicuously unreliable frequently enough to remind you of that. <laughs> now, the gap theory had its day. Uh, if you're interested in reading in this area, I encourage you to uh, explore the writings of G.H. Pember, Earth's Earliest Ages. Uh, he, does, he was one of the, uh, the proponents of this kind of a view. It had its day and then fell into disrepute. It has, it's had its ups and downs. But uh, having gone full circle, I still lean towards it. I think it's provocative. It's interesting. That's why I share it. Another book you might enjoy in this spirit is Donald Gray Barnhouse's book, The Invisible War, where he talks about the spirit world and what we're up against and so forth. But he starts with this, and he perceives the, the eons in which, after this judgment that is, is, is implied, how Satan was powerless to do anything about it. Desolation and emptiness. And it wasn't until the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters that we have something happening. So if you want to do a study of the Holy Spirit, you don't start in Acts 2, you start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There's a lot that has its roots there. Okay, enough of this. I think we've given Isaiah 45, 18 its due. He created it not in Tohu, okay? He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. And he goes on. And we, I think we finished chapter 45 last time, didn't we? Okay. Chapter 46. We're going to talk a lot about idols here coming up and some fun stuff. Bell boweth down and Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden. They are burdened to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. It's speaking of a different kind of captivity. We might comment just briefly on this. We're not talking captivity like the Babylonian captivity. There may be Babylonian idols, but that's what we're talking about. I don't think. We say we have freedom to make choices. We're free to do whatever. Yes, we are. But we will be enslaved by those appetites. If you choose sex, you'll be enslaved by sex. If you choose money, you'll be enslaved by money. You'll become captive to that which you worship. And you can make your own list. In fact, you need to make your own list of those things that capture your attention. Because there is no appetite that will satisfy. And as those appetites are met, they will enslave. What makes it even more frightening is that the scripture also tells us that you will become like the gods you worship. You're going to worship Baal, you'll become like Baal. You're going to worship Moloch, you'll become like Moloch. If you're going to worship Bel or Nebo, you'll be like them. If you worship Mammon, you'll become Mammon-like. And that's one of the most compelling reasons to make sure that what you worship is Christ. Because you'll become like him. We pick our idols, we pick our enslavements. We find strange comfort in being captivated by something. It can be a career. We can observe on the horizon all kinds of careers that really demand more than they yield. I often see some noteworthy performance or a noteworthy uh, achievement. And indeed it is in secular terms, and yet I wonder, boy, at what cost of a balanced human life. We seem to seek places to hide 
and become slaves to those environments. Make your list as to what you really worship and recognize that you'll become like them. I remember hearing when I was even, as a young man, even as you get going into business, before you pick a business, meet a lot of people who are in it because you'll become like them. You just will. And spend time on 7th Avenue, you'll be 7th Avenue. And so forth. Anyway, they themselves are going into captivity. Indeed, they do. So that's what we mean by the liberty in Christ. He'll deliver you from those. Only he can. You want to see a miracle, the kind of miracles that are the most impressive are the miracles of changed lives. Only Christ delivers that. Verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Well, notice all the way through here, Isaiah keeps putting them antiphonally. Jacob, Israel. Jacob, Israel. Jacob, the carnal side. Israel, the spiritual side. Jacob, the conniver, but nevertheless justified. And Israel, the chosen of God. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from their birth, who are carried from the womb. Now, it could be speaking of the tribes of Israel from their birth, or also, the idiom is often used, speaking of the nation as if it had been born in Egypt. And God will speak of Israel as his firstborn, speaking of the nation, often. Verse 4, and even to your old age, I am he, and even to the gray hairs will I carry you. I, I like that, the gray hairs. I imagine we've given him a lot of gray hairs. <laughs> I have made and I will bear, and, I, and even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that, that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. In other words, it's an idle fabrication. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.